After 36 years, a convicted child killer is out on bail. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Today, the Vancouver Sun's Darm McQuana brings us the story of Philip Talio. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. Please leave us a rating and a review. In 1983, Philip James Talio confessed to murdering 22-month-old Delavina Mack in the small coastal BC town of Bellacoola. Despite pleading guilty to second-degree murder, Talio, who is now 54 years old, has always maintained his innocence. In January, Justice Elizabeth Bennett ordered Talio released on bail pending his appeal, which is scheduled to begin in earnest this March. Until then, Talio will live in a residence operated by the John Howard Society at an undisclosed location in Metro Vancouver. I'm Dar Makwana, and I'm joined by Dan Fumano. Dan and our colleague Matt Robinson first told the story of Talio's arrest, trial, conviction, and a recent push for an appeal backed by the University of BC Innocence Project in 2017. Dan, how did you and fellow reporter Matt Robinson learn about Philip Talio's murder conviction? We first heard about this case back in 2017. It came as a tip. Someone told me that there was a uh, an appeal underway in the court system, but nothing was really kind of publicly known about it at the time. The only thing we were able to get was initially was the notice of appeal that had been filed, which was a very brief, I think like a one-page document, kind of just outlining the fact that this fellow was in jail for a 1983 murder conviction, and he hoped to appeal it. There was very limited information available publicly. Um, You know, we couldn't find anything through sort of the usual online searches. If you Googled his name, nothing at all came up. We were able to find a couple of very short uh, little crime briefs that had run in the province and I think the the Vancouver Sun at the time back in 1983 uh, in our physical archives. Like we went down to the old, like cold old uh, vault. I went down there with our librarian, Carolyn Soltow, and uh, we went through the actual crime cards and looked up this name and found these just little three or four sentence briefs just outlining the basic facts of the crime, uh, which was basically that in 1983, uh, a 17-year-old man named Philip Talio was arrested in Bella Coola in the sort of central coast of BC uh, on a First Nations reserve there. It's quite a small remote community. Uh, and he was arrested in connection with the death of a 22-month-old child there. And uh, soon after his arrest, he had a trial and entered a guilty plea and was sentenced. Was it the nature of the crime that made this story so compelling to investigate? The nature of the crime, of course, is horrific. Um, this young child was murdered and um, Talio had entered a guilty plea. He was initially charged with first-degree murder and then had entered a guilty plea uh, to second-degree murder. Now, sort of the way that plea came about was going to be years later challenged by his lawyers. The other thing that made the case, we thought, that made it pretty compelling was the fact that this guy had been in jail for so long. And even though he did plead guilty at trial, ever since he's started his sentence back in 1983 or early 84, he has kind of consistently maintained his innocence. And he's kept saying he didn't do it, he didn't do it. Now, his second degree 
conviction came with, uh, I think, a 10-year prison sentence before he was going to be eligible for parole. So he was eligible for parole as early as, I think, 1994. But when he applied for parole to try to get released, the parole boards basically said they wouldn't consider him because even though he wasn't causing problems in jail and he was seemed to be an okay inmate and he seemed to be a relatively low risk to reoffend, they wouldn't consider him because he hadn't taken responsibility for the crime because he kept saying he was innocent. So they wouldn't consider him. So then he reapplied for parole a few years later and the parole board again, same thing. They said, the main reason we can't release you is you refuse to accept responsibility for your crime. It's kind of this catch 22. He was, because he keeps saying he's innocent, he wouldn't, he wasn't going to be uh, considered for release. And we got access to all those old parole board uh, documents and decisions and transcripts of the interviews from the 1990s through the 2000s. When we first started reporting on this, I think Philip Talio had been in jail for 34 years or something, which at that time, which, you know, if his appeal were to eventually be successful, he would be the longest imprisoned Canadian who had been wrongfully convicted if, in fact, he is eventually exonerated. Uh, it would be longer than, you know, David Milgard or a lot of other high profile cases. Let's go back to 1983. Uh, who was that 17-year-old Philip Talio? He's originally f from Bella Coola in that area, from the, I think it's pronounced Newhook Nation, uh, Central Coast First Nation. But he had spent some of his time in different communities, in different places, with uh, foster families, and he had lived in different places. I think he was in William near Williams Lake for a while. The time of this crime, April 1983, he had just recently moved back to Bella Coola after several years of living elsewhere and was kind of back living in where his home community was. To hear Philip describe it, he was quite happy to be back there and to be around where he had extended family and sort of roots. You know, in some ways, he sounds like a pretty kind of normal 17-year-old, like the, I think in the the last day or two leading up to the this crime and his subsequent arrest, he had been, he had gone, I think he went to a training session where, because he was trying to be a volunteer firefighter in the community. And then he had uh, gone roller skating with his girlfriend. And then they had gone to see a movie at the uh, community hall. I think there's just like a community hall where they would show movies in the community. And they went to see E.T., so yeah, he had a girlfriend. I think she was a year or two younger than him, and uh, and he had actually just found out that she was pregnant. So he was um, he had been expressing to his family members and his friends that he was excited about the prospect of having a family of his own and having a child of his own. On that fateful morning in April of 1983, what did Talio do that day? Talio, as I say, had been sort of out with his girlfriend earlier that day. And then later that night, he was at a party at someone's house on the reserve. And people were hanging out and uh, drinking and socializing. And then later that night, and this is all sort of extracted, this timeline, the sequence of events is kind of extracted from different affidavits that different community members had filed. Yeah, Talio dropped his girlfriend off at home. And then he returned to uh, his uncle and aunt's place where the party was going on, was chatting with family members and stuff. And then later on, at some point in the late, late night, early morning, 
according to the affidavits, uh, the affidavit filed by Talio himself, it says that he had been asked to go check on his niece or cousin, I believe it was, uh, this young girl, the toddler. He had been asked to go check on her. So he went to check on her. And then according to his affidavit, he found her dead and then ran to go report what he had found. Um, he started weeping and he told people that he had found her and she was dead. Within a couple of hours, the RCMP showed up and uh, took him down to the station for questioning. Why was Talio's arrest and ensuing interrogation uh, such a point of contention? As I say, he he was the one who sort of reported that he was saying he had just come across the girl, young, uh, the young victim, and reported her. the The police picked him up and took him for questioning, and then they held him there at the station for several hours and interrogated him. Meanwhile, the the two sort of younger constables who were stationed in Bellacoola or right beside the reserve, they got a more senior Mountie flew down, a corporal flew down from Prince Rupert uh, by seaplane to conduct the interrogation of this, of you know, 17-year-old Philip Talio. And he was held in there for several hours and there was some contention about whether he was uh, allowed to speak with counsel, um, whether he his access to a a lawyer was impeded by these by the by the police so the police eventually extracted a confession from him most of the interview was recorded on a tape recorder but the part of the interview where talio where the police said that talio had confessed the tape recorder had malfunctioned at that time and so there was no audio of it so you had the this mounty who had basically entered the evidence saying that their suspect, Philip Talio, had confessed to this murder. So that was going to become a point of contention later on during the trial when Talio's lawyer, his defense lawyer, challenged the admissibility of that confession saying that uh, it was either coerced or it wasn't legitimate. And the court agreed. And um, and that initial jailhouse – you know, station house confession was thrown out at the trial. There was a second interview as well with a psychiatrist working for a BC Forensics Institute. That's also come under the microscope a little bit. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, heading into the trial, those were the two main pieces of evidence were this confession to the Mounties that, we, as we talked about, was thrown out at trial. And then the other one was a confession made to, as you say, a psychiatric professional. And after the, the police confession was thrown out, it put that much more weight on the other uh, confession. So yeah, the, the confession made to the psychiatric professional was a, obviously a big, was a big part of the Crown's case back in 1983. And now, you know, based on what's been filed in advance of Talio's appeal, it appears that his lawyers want to sort of try to challenge this, uh, the confession that was, that was made to the psychiatric, uh, professional. Uh, so Talio's lawyers have filed some affidavits from experts, other psychiatrists, things like that, who have, uh, sort of assessed 
the interview that the psychiatrist conducted with Talio back in 1983 and the statements that uh, Talio was reported to have made to the psychiatrist, this interview also was not recorded. So it's based on um, a transcript uh, that was filed with the court. The lawyers now have filed uh, expert opinions questioning the credibility and, and uh, legitimacy of the supposed confession that the doctor extracted back in 1983. Aside from these interviews being under review and questioned, uh, the defense is also looking at DNA evidence collected at the time of the crime. What are they saying? Yeah, so DNA also forms a part of the appeal. Um, and it's tricky. It's quite a complicated thing because DNA, you know, forensic DNA testing did not exist in 1983 when Talia was first arrested and, uh, and when the, the, the young girl was murdered. The samples that they do have, there are some tissue samples from the victim, but they were not collected for the purpose of DNA testing. They were collected for other I guess, scientific or medical purposes. But Talio's lawyers have tried to tried to argue in court that these samples should be released by the state and should be tested to see if they might be able to exonerate Talio. Now, the Crown has taken the position that these samples would not be able to scientifically, forensically exonerate Talio. But uh, so there has been this contentious... Uh, there's been a point, point of argument between both Talio's lawyers and the government for a couple of years now going on. But the the court did order that some of the DNA samples should be released. And there has been some testing done on these DNA samples. Now, I think going forward, there might be more arguments about the admissibility of that evidence or what it might mean. But it's a, it's a tricky thing because, again, you know, 1983 – the uh, crime scene, the people working the crime scene weren't collecting it for the purpose of DNA because – and I think – I mean I think DNA testing really kind of just started fairly soon after after that time. Um, so – but it didn't really exist at the time. Two years ago, Talia was granted escorted temporary absences from jail. What went into that decision? The decision was made back, yeah, almost exactly two years ago, uh, January 2018. His lawyers had initially sought or Talio had sought unescorted temporary absences, meaning that he can go out of jail on his own, uh, sort of his own recognizance for periods of time. They initially sought that, but the Parole Board of Canada denied that. Uh, they cited a, a number of uh, concerns for that reason, one of them being the fact that he had just been in jail for so long. Um, they thought, you know, he might have become – sort of institutionalized during that time. Um, they also cited the fact that uh, in denying him in the uh, unsupervised absences, they cited the fact that he had pleaded guilty, you know, in his conviction. The, they cited the the trauma on the victim's family. Um, the, obviously, the, the whole thing had been horrific for them. Yeah, there, and there were concerns about his um, his risk of violent or sexual reoffending being low moderate to moderate they said so there were some concerns uh, with the board at that time that they didn't allow him unescorted absences but they did uh, start to allow him escorted temporary absences meaning that he could go out with supervision for brief periods of time visit family members things like that um which he was uh, 
his lawyer said he was happy to have at the time because it was the first time in 35 years at that point that he had been able to get outside of a jail except for a couple of brief medical appointments or things like that. It was the first time he was really able to sort of go around in the outside world, even if he was under supervision. He was glad to do that. And now he's been granted bail pending his appeal. It's a bit of an unusual thing. He's he's not out on parole. He's on bail. Yeah, as you say, pending the result of this appeal, which is expected to go forward later this year. Initially, so last year, Talio had sought bail and his lawyers came to the court with a bail application and sort of outlining what a release plan that they were proposing, like saying, here's how Talio could be released on bail and here's how, here's the facility he could move into and they're willing to accept him. And it was at a sort of a transitional facility in the Fraser Valley. And so that was heard last summer, summer of 2019. And at the time, the Crown was opposing his release on bail. The government was saying he shouldn't be released. Uh, if anything, he should... Um, apply for day parole first and then uh, before applying for something like this. Anyway, the court had concerns last year about the level of supervision. They were saying that they thought Talio would require, if he were going to be released into the community, uh, they thought he would require a higher level of supervision and oversight than what this facility was going to be able to provide. This facility in the Fraser Valley had supervisory staff on site, but they weren't there 24 hours. So the staff wasn't physically at the facility overnight. And I think that was kind of flagged by the judge as a concern. So the judge didn't dismiss the application outright. I think she sort of said, uh, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was adjourned with leave to reapply. So she basically encouraged or left the door open for Talio's lawyers to reapply in the future if they can come up with a new plan that would uh, satisfy her concerns over, about the level of supervision. And so over the following months, they did just that. And then just, um, just recently came back to the court with a new plan, a new application, and said that they had found a facility that has 24 hour a day, seven day a week on site staffing. They said that they've got a room that's available for Talio if he is granted uh, release and he would be willing to abide by whatever conditions need be, restrictions on his travel, restrictions on where he's allowed to go, you know, spot checks and drug and alcohol tests and different things like that, curfews, strict curfews. And so that was heard earlier this month in January of 2020 and uh, the Court of Appeal granted him bail. So that was a big deal for Talio. I, I haven't spoken with Talio directly, but through his lawyers, his lawyers have said that he was um, pretty overwhelmed with the idea of being able to get out of jail and wake up in a, in a setting that's not a, a prison for the first time in you know, decades. What did the victim's family say about Talio's release? Well, they've been opposing it. There's a lawyer appeared on behalf of the victim's uh, mother in court. They've said that this the process for them, the whole thing has been awful. Uh, obviously, there's a horrific thing that happened to their family member back in 1983, and uh, it had a horrible impact on this family. One of the things the court heard was that the the family was terrified of just kind of bumping into Talio if he were to be released, like accidentally seeing him on the street or something. They were horrified at that prospect. And one of the things Talio had said in his application is he was willing to sort of abide by certain restrictions to try to mitigate the risk of an unintentional um, 
you know, unintentionally seeing them uh, to hopefully try to reduce that risk. When does Talio's appeal begin and what can we expect? So now it's January 2020 and he's out and he's uh, living at this new facility. But the case, I think, is going to be back in court later this month just for sort of some preliminary legal arguments. And then the proper appeal, which will be before sort of a three-judge panel, the Court of Appeal, they'll have three judges there. That will get going in late March, I believe. And that will include fresh evidence, including, you know, from witnesses and uh, testimony, including Talio himself might be taking the stand and testifying. Okay, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Darm McQuana from the Vancouver Sun. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.